Hello, it's Matt DeSaro again with the June 2023 episode of the OWASP podcast, and I have another good one for you. In this episode, we talk to Steve Springett, the driving force between two wildly popular projects, OWASP Dependency Track and Cyclone DX. We hear how those projects got started, how they've changed over the years, and where they're heading next. Definitely worth hanging around for the entire episode, so let's get started. Enjoy. Hi, it's Matt DeSaro. I am here today with Steve Springett. You may or may not know of him. You probably should. He is the person behind Dependency Track and also Cyclone DX. This guy is well beyond up to his neck in S-bombs and all S-bomb things. So. Steve, for the people who don't know you, can you give them a little bit of background? Let them know what's going on with you and what your history is like. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, I'm Steve Springett. I do a lot of work in the OWASP community, like Matt said. I lead the OWASP Dependency Track Project. It's a flagship OWASP project that uh, consumes and analyzes bills of materials. I lead the OWASP Cyclone DX bill of materials format. And I am the co-author of the OWASP Software Component Verification Standard, which helps organizations measure and improve their software supply chain assurance. What I actually get paid to do is I'm one of the directors of product security over at ServiceNow, where we work with around 5,000 or so developers, trying to get them to build secure and resilient software. Excellent. So I got to ask, because I, when I was prepping for this podcast, I got very curious like dependency track, although right now it's a very big thing, it's not a new piece of software. It's been around for a while now. So how did you even get prompted into doing that work? Well, it was like 2017, 2016. I can't remember when that first came out, but it's been years. It actually started in 2013. Oh. I hired an intern at my employer at the time because we had a very simple requirement. We were shipping these things called server appliances. We would call them antiques today, but we would <laughs> sell these pieces of hardware into you know, people's data centers and we needed to track the full stack inventory. So that meant the operating system, the application, the application libraries, the hardware that it's running on, all the different optional components that's in that hardware, all the firmware. I had to track the entire thing. And I had to do that because even when you buy from certain OEMs, you might actually get slightly different hardware, even though it's technically the same model number. So we had to have this really basic use case where we're tracking the full inventory and there was really nothing out there that did that. So the initial design of dependency track was basically, and this is how I kind of talked about it in some of my early OWASP talks. I talked about it as an asset management application for components, because that's really what it was. And, and then of course, you know, several years later, the US government, especially in 2017, 2018, started talking about software bill of materials. And that concept never really occurred to me. Why limit things to just software, right? The world just isn't software, right? There's this thing called IOT. I heard it's really big, but why are we ignoring this? Why are we ignoring the cloud for that matter? But okay, SBOM, we can do that as well. But I think the U.S. government has really had a really dramatic impact on the level of understanding of what these things are 
and why they're important. And that has dramatically increased the adoption prior to the U.S. government's involvement in something like dependency track, for example. We maybe had less than 100 organizations using it. Now we have tens of thousands of organizations using dependency track. It's used by some of the largest companies in the world. It's used by multiple governments, multiple federal agencies. And every single month, we know that there are dependency track systems are responsible for analyzing over 300 million components for known vulnerabilities every single month. That's just the numbers we know about. It could be actually much larger. So if you track the trajectory prior to U.S. government versus now, it's just been right. They, they're, they're like the number one marketing machine we have. <laughs> well, viewers or listeners may know I'm part of the Defect Dojo project, and there's an integration between Dependency Track and Defect Dojo. And I hear about it as people are wanting to you know, push findings out of Dependency Track into Dojo. But it's surprising me how that has become a very popular sort of pair to handle the workloads of, hey, I've got these vulnerable libraries. And it's an interesting place from the Defect Dojo side because we wrote that to handle findings, right? Vulnerabilities, you know, security issues. And we have this idea of a component inside of Defect Dojo, but it's really just a way to say this finding is attached to some library. It's not anything remotely like SBOM. So I'm very happy to have this sort of sibling project that handles the other half of it because I also kind of, to be honest with you, don't want to muddy up Dojo because I like that Unix idea, right? We do the one thing, we do it well, and I'll hand it off to other tools and play nice with them to do other things, right? So yeah, dependency track is just... We, we, we see the same kind of thing, right? Even with Cyclone DX, which is basically the bill of materials format that allows all this communication to happen in terms of inventory, Cyclone DX also handles vulnerabilities. And one of the use cases is to just very simply be able to trade vulnerability data between different systems, right? So if you want to just describe, you know, a certain CBE or a certain internally found vulnerability, and you want to trade that information between two parties, you can do that. But we've added support for other things such as proof of exploit code and, and all these other things that, you know, responsible disclosure and platforms like Defect Dojo actually support. And while we are going to ingest a lot of this stuff in dependency track, we're certainly not going to reinvent Defect Dojo. <laughs> Again, going back to that Unix philosophy, right? Do, a, do one thing, do it well, and integrate with the systems that you need to, to provide additional value. So it's just a strength in numbers type of thing. Definitely. And I've got to think that Cyclone DX, which I, I don't completely under, know the history here, I'm not as well as you, but that grew out of doing dependency track. Right. And then that thing, I think, has must have like gone to places you never thought possible. Yeah, it's been really interesting. So we actually developed Cyclone DX. It started as an issue in the dependency track GitHub repository. And we were looking at, there was one other spec available. It didn't really meet our needs. So it was one of these kind of things where, okay, let's create a new standard. And we did it outside of OWASP because we didn't want to... To, to make it seem like this was an OWASP standard for an OWASP tool. If we really wanted organizations to adopt this, it had to be, it had to live at least initially outside of OWASP, right? 
And as good as reputation as OWASP has, especially it's uh, the reputation for being, you know, honest and transparent with a lot of the things that we do, it, it's not necessarily a name that a developer would, would associate with. So we had to do something our own and we ended up creating a few different implementations. I think we created a Maven implementation, NPM. We hit the largest ecosystems first. And then people started writing their own. And soon we had a collection of tools. Oh, hey, there's, you know, 20 tools that support this thing. And again, since the executive order, uh, 140.28, which kind of requires SBOM and, and certain levels of transparency, we now have the largest collection of tools of any SBOM format. We're over 200 tools. These are just the known ones that actually support this standard. And there's over 200,000 organizations estimated that, that actually use this stuff in production on a daily basis. So the, again, the adoption, the numbers are truly incredible. You know, when you build something, as you know, right, you build something and you think it's going to be used a certain way. And then people, you know, they have their own use cases. They have their own problems that they need to solve. And one such group took dependency track, for example. And they started tracking the individual pacemakers that were implanted in patients and tracking the software stack on those individual pacemakers, right? Well, dependency track was not designed to handle protected health information. Please do not do this. But there was no other solution available that allowed them to do that. Again, because SBOM is fairly new, the consumption tools are fairly immature, but dependency track as a project wasn't confined by SBOM, right? It's, it has 10 years of being around and thinking about these ideas. Likewise, Cyclone DX was originally conceived for, you know, software. And then we had a, initially a support for kind of rudimentary hardware, but today it's used to describe complete cloud environments. You can describe satellite systems, guidance systems on an F-35 is a real use case for us, MRI machines. It's really interesting the number of use cases that some of these organizations do with something like Cyclone DX. It's, it's really incredible. Well, and that's a great sign that you've done something right, honestly. When there are uses for your thing that you've developed that are far beyond your original goals. I created a tool years ago to do some API automation. This was back when Curl was the easiest uh, API client to have way before there was open API spec or Swagger or any of that stuff. This was years ago when it was really low level and crunchy to work with. So I wrote this wrapper around Curl that would allow you to sort of, ah, oh, these repeated parts of Curl, I'm gonna put them in a config file and it'll just basically call Curl by adding in my command line options and it just makes the Curl command short. Well, so I had this tool and it was working well for me. I was testing lots of APIs and I was talking with a friend who used it and he goes, yeah, I, I used it to automate workflows. And I'm like, what? He goes, oh yeah, I automated workflows because I had a command line option to point it at a particular config. And he just wrote four configs that did the four things that needed to happen to the API. And this called config one, config two, config three, config four. And then and I was like, I never thought of it as being a workflow thing. That's super cool. I imagine you were quite heartened by the fact this thing that you, you know, created to solve a problem became this much more universal tool. And much for, I mean, if the numbers that you call out are just nuts, I knew it was popular, but holy cow. Yeah, you never envisioned the use cases. You never envisioned this kind of trajectory. 
again, the U.S. government has popularized this. You know, without them, we would still be kind of a niche thing. But but yeah, these numbers are just mind blowing, and I think it's going to get even more insane. We're introducing. Uh, fa fairly soon, actually, we're introducing a bunch of new capabilities to Cyclone. For example, there's this thing called machine learning. Again, I heard it's pretty popular, especially this thing called generative AI. Yeah, we're, we're actually going to be able to model that in a bill of materials. You'll have complete transparency of where the models came from, how they were trained, how they were evaluated, complete track of the prominence of these models, because there are nation state adversaries that are publishing open source models to known platforms that share models, right? Not calling out names, not calling out adversaries, but this does happen. So the folks at the DOD, other places, they kind of care about these types of things. So machine learning transparency is, is something that we're bringing to the table. The other thing about bills of materials is that it, it only really tells you about what's in it. It doesn't tell you how it was made which is also very important, right? I could use a vulnerable version of maybe glibc and, you know, depending on how I compile, I may or may not have a vulnerable artifact as, as a result. Again, the details matter, right? Security is all about the details. And being able to describe how the sausage was made is something that Cyclone DX, the next version actually does support. So we, you can kind of think about it as being able to describe what's on the recipe versus what actually transpired in the kitchen. Cyclone DX will actually be able to support both use cases. So that way you can kind of set your baseline for what you expect for, and then you compare that and discover any anomalies. It also gives you a complete formulation for true reproducible builds, right? Which are mostly theoretical today. I mean, people talk about reproducible builds and they usually refer to like checksum. That's not reproducibility. That's kind of a cop-out. But if you want true reproducibility, including all the provenance data, which is not in your checksum, you need to have the complete formulation for how it was made. So we're working closely with IBM and a bunch of Clips Foundation, a bunch of others to make sure that this actually works in the real world. We're also introducing things like the ability to identify like how confident are you in saying that this component is what it's, what you think it is, right? What were the techniques used? How confident are you in this? Is there a call stack? Yeah, we also support call stacks now because a lot of open source components are never called in the context of the application they're bundled in, right? So we're supporting all this stuff. So huge release coming out really soon. And then we're also working on 1.6 because IBM researchers in Zurich, Switzerland, they've forked Cyclone DX. They created this thing called CBOM, cryptography bill of material, so that they can analyze the cryptographic assets so they can start the mitigation journey for a post-quantum reality, right? So they can discover all the potential weaknesses, crypto weaknesses in their applications and systems. So we're going to be bringing cryptography bill of materials to the standard and a bunch of other stuff. So we're just getting started. And in terms of a trajectory in the amount of adoption, I think it's just going to be utterly insane. I think we're just at the very beginning of it right now. So my role over at Cyclone DX has kind of shifted a little bit over the last couple of years 
to being more of a community builder. So we have a fairly large community at this point, right? We've got hundreds of contributors. We've got multiple working groups. We've got different feature working groups, each one tackling a different subject. We got a industry working group, which basically is the, if you're familiar with extreme programming, it's kind of like the concept of an on-site customer. So that's our industry working group. We got the core working group. So we've got a ton of people involved in all this. And then a pretty large Slack channel. I think there's like a thousand people in our Slack workspace. Yeah, it's kind of shifted to community builder right now because it's taken on a life of its own at this point. The cyclone, so to speak, has gotten away from you. I mean, what, what a apt name choice. <laughs> it's become a storm, right? I mean, I, I just, you're talking about all the things that are happening with it. I thought, wow, cyclone was a really good name choice because, oh my. Yeah, and, and the what funny is, thing about it is that the name actually came from the complexities that can arise when you have circular dependencies. Oh, where the cycling, that's what actually where the name comes from. So, oh. I mean, circular dependencies, I mean, sometimes it's, if you just have two, it's, you know, it's fine, but in a large system with lots of large circular dependencies, it's kind of like Tasmanian double, right? Lots of energy, all of it destructive. And <laughs> it, that's kind of where the name came from. Oh, that's beautiful. I did not know that backstory. That's beautiful. Yeah. One of the, one of the fun things I've run into challenges, I guess, and maybe your build aspect of Cyclone DX would address this. It's been fun when you run a, a, a you know, an SBOM-ish tool or even an SCA tool against a repo and it flags a bunch of things and you look into them and you're like, oh, those are all my test harnesses. They actually aren't part of the app, but they're in the repo because that's just easy logistically. And it's been interesting to work, having to work around those issues of like, hey, yes, I know I have this air quote bad stuff uh, in my repo, but it's really only a thing to drive the testing that doesn't ship with the app. It's not built into the app, but it happens to be in the repo. Is that something that Cyclone DX is, I, have you heard people have, like running into the issue with Cyclone DX? Yeah, I mean, some people care about it and some people don't. In general though, if something is going to be read only and doesn't necessarily touch the code, then, you know, excluding those test things is probably okay. Right. Especially for integration testing and that sort of thing. But, you know, any kind of unit runners or unit test runners or anything like that, all of those, I mean, if you have a malicious QA tool and it's operating in your build pipeline, it can manipulate the source code and you won't even know it. So one of the challenges is not only identifying that, which itself would be bad, but there are many good and positive reasons why you actually do manipulate code while during a build cycle, right? Like in the Java ecosystem, for example, you've got your persistence frameworks. You typically go through an enhancement process, which adds a bunch of metadata to your persistible classes, right? It's a natural thing and it's a good use of code generation. Problem is, is that how do you determine the good use of code generation versus the malicious code generation? That's a much more complicated problem. I think the SBOM thing is, SBOM I kind of view is kind of more like a transport, right? It, it doesn't really provide a lot of value in and of itself. It, the value really stems from how you use it and the systems that can actually consume it and understand it. It's nothing more than a messaging format though. So what I think you'll see over the next maybe five years or so is, you know, we have cloud observability, which is basically 
being able to identify performance and other types of issues in a cloud environment. Well, I think that same kind of concept will eventually apply to our supply chain, where we're monitoring things in real time while they're happening. I think that's the only way we're going to truly make improvements because otherwise, if we're going through it tool by tool by tool, we're never going to make any progress because as humans, we constantly reinvent the wheel, which means that we're going to have a never ending supply of tools that we have to include in this thing called the software supply chain. So I think observability is probably going to be in our very new future for monitoring this stuff. Yeah, that's super fascinating. I had not thought about that, but that really makes a heck of a lot of sense. And if you're doing this at scale, it's one thing to talk about running a tool against a repo, but if you have 2000 repos and a global international company, you got to do this in a much better way and observability, you know, built to handle air quote cloud size problems. If you could do that in the software world where there are equally complex cloudy like problems, that would be a fantastic thing. So CISA held its Espamarama. And Alan Friedman has been leading the, the SBOM efforts in the U.S. federal government. He's put on a few, he, mostly when he was at NTIA before joining CISA. But when he joined CISA, this, this latest SBOM-arama actually had, I think, in excess of 900 people, both combination of virtual and in-person actually attend, which wow. is just absolutely massive, right? Especially for a U.S. government type of selected event. But... It's interesting. I'm not going to call out any names, even though it is a success story, but there was one gentleman who I know through various working groups told one of his success stories. He's got a thousand products in his environment that he sells to customers, right? Thousand different SKUs. And when log for shell happened within a two week period of time, he knew exactly what products were affected. He had prioritized them and he had fixed them all simply because he had SBOMs for everything that they had and had systems that told him where these things were. So whether that was dependency track or something else is completely irrelevant. But the fact that they were able to do this at that kind of scale in that short a time is, is amazing. That's incredibly impressive. It was funny because you're reminding me, someone asked me, why do you have this technology? In Defect Dojo, there's a technologies place where you can basically denote these, this product uses these technologies. And they were like, why did you add this? I'm like, well, back when I worked at Rackspace, Jenkins had a really bad vulnerability. And we thought to ourselves, it'd be really nice to know what teams were using Jenkins because we had to do the flip over the thousand rocks thing, right? Which is just not glorious. And so it's one of those, like the, probably the most unsexy part of AppSec or InfoSec or cybersecurity or whatever you want to call it, inventory. But it is so massively empowering just to be able yeah. to make the educated decisions rather than guesses. Yeah. And nobody wants to do that work, right? We're all cyber professionals, most of us, and we get compensated fairly well and having to do a lot of this mundane type of work, although important, we should have systems that do this for us, right? That way we can concentrate on the harder problems because there's a lot, there's not a shortage of hard problems to solve. And it's, oh, that is absolutely the case, man. And that's something computers are just great at, like this kind of grunty, repetitive, to a human brain, ex extremely unexciting work. Like computers will chew that stuff up all day long. Indeed. So you mentioned one thing, the heart embedded 
pacemaker or whatever it was. Is there any other kind of like crazy, crazy uses that you never thought would happen with Cyclone DX that have popped into your radar? I mean, all the time. The fact that different U.S. agencies have standardized on a lot of the stuff that OWASP has built is, is next level. I think it's, it's incredibly satisfying. It's incredibly humbling knowing that, you know, whatever government is adopted, because there's multiple world governments that, that use this stuff. Um, but it, it's incredibly humbling that the stuff that OWASP is producing, it's used for some of the largest organizations in the world some of the largest governments in the world, a lot of critical infrastructure, financial services, healthcare. I mean, it's just, it's all over the place. And I think without going into specific use cases, it's really interesting how something can be so universal that you can describe parts of a fighter jet. And you can also describe MRI machines and automobiles and these types of things, which are in fact being done. It's really interesting. And it's one of these things where our table, if you've, if you've ever listened to Adam Shostak talk about threat modeling, right? It's about the seat at the table. Well, Cyclone DX is a really big table because we have so many different types of use cases, so many different types of stakeholders, so many different people providing feedback on what it is that, that works, what doesn't work, what needs to be improved, that there's no shortage of additional things that we can do. But yeah, it's, it's incredibly humbling knowing that you're having such a profound impact on the industry. Well, and you have evidence, I would say, in the explosion of the use cases that you did fundamentally make a useful model, right? At the end of the day, you could have found a great way to model software things and it would not apply to hardware, but you've apparently found a sweet spot. I, yeah, you know, it was one of these weird things where Cyclone DX grew up in the age of hyper automation. We grew up in, a, in an age of DevSecOps and small security teams were trying to run as fast as we can with, you know, a fraction as many people and we're trying to keep up with development teams where we were not automating for strategic purposes. We were automating for survival. And we did not choose the perfect data model for Cyclone DX. What we chose was a data model that could be highly automatable. And that's a very distinct difference, right? You can automate anything, but if you have SBOM as a process, not a one-time event, that means a lot of tools could potentially touch that SBOM from the moment you generate the first one all the way to you think you have that final thing, right? There could be a lot of tools enhancing that and augmenting it and correcting it, et cetera. So it was really important for us to create a model that wasn't perfect, but was highly automatable. And that's what we settled on. There's some design choices that I kind of cringe at. <laughs> if I had to do it over again, I certainly would. But for the most part, I think it's a successful model because of some of the early design choices that we, that we chose. One thing I do, and I, I, I don't think I forewarned you, but I'm going to forewarn you now. On all of my podcasts, I have this card deck of little things that are completely unrelated to S-bombs or dependency track or any of the stuff we've been talking about. So I, I have pulled the king of clubs for you today. Let me read your question. If you could identify with one fictional character from a book, show, or movie, who would it be? Hmm. That's interesting. If I could identify with a character, that's a hard one. I'm going to go with Winnie the Pooh. Nice. Nice. 
I'm going to go with Winnie the Pooh because, you know, he always has a really positive outlook on, on life. He always tries to get his friends to a nice, happy state, even though he isn't overly bright and is always sometimes wrong. Yes. I love it. Oh, that is fantastic. I did not think that was going to go there. So that's beautiful. Oh, that is perfect. Well, it was either that or the Matrix, so... <laughs> Well, throw a curveball every once in a while, right? Keep them guessing. I love yeah. that. Well, this has been fantastic. And I, I appreciate you cutting up some time out of your very busy day. I'm sure you're up to your eyeballs in Cyclone DX besides the day job. So this has been super interesting. And I, once again, greatly appreciate your time. Appreciate it, Matt. Thanks for having me on and have a great rest of your day. Cheers. Cheers. I'd like to thank Defect Dojo Inc. for making it possible for me to record this episode. Defect Dojo Inc. is a team of experienced technology and security professionals who build tools that actually provide peace of mind. They want all humans to sleep better knowing that their work is effective, their progress de-risked. Defect Dojo's flagship software offering is a security automation and vulnerability management platform that serves as a single source of truth. It can import results from more than 150 different security tools. It is a leader in the space with over 30 million downloads. Contact them at defectdojo.com for more information about their products and services.